So this week's guest is a man called Paul Samuels. He has the rather lofty title of Executive Vice President at AEG Global Partnerships. I've known him for a few years. I knew him when he was Head of Sponsorship for O2 in the UK. What AEG do, basically, is they are the aficionados of live experiences. Lots of live music in the UK, lots of live sports in the USA. And it's Paul's job to get those live relationships commercialised. So he's responsible for selling the naming rights at the O2. He's also responsible for smaller sponsorship and kind of live event packages. Our conversation took place at AEG's head office in Mayfair. It was a wide-ranging chat, and actually, I think we got to know Paul as a person to find out what his kind of motives are, but we also dug down a bit to find out what he knew about youth audiences and youth culture, and um, some of the findings were great. So stick around, have a listen to Paul Samuels and his rocket fuel. Okay, Paul, first thing, thank you so much for doing this. I can't thank you enough. Delighted to be here. Let's start with you, Paul. Let's start with a little bit about your journey. How have you got to this role at AEG and what is that role? What does it encompass? So my role at AEG is Executive Vice President and the role is basically looking after all our commercial partners for everything from naming rights to um, founding partners to supply partners uh, as well as all our premium seating, which is all our corporate boxes and suites that we have across all our venues and assets everything outside the US, which will basically be um, all our venues, all our music festivals, uh, any tours that we do, and our sports teams. Okay. Um, how I got here uh, is a kind of a, uh, a long journey. Started in the world of events. Yeah. Uh, was doing an event manager for a company called um, World Online. And then my boss at the time left to go to a company called Genie, uh, which was owned by BT. Um, and Genie and then BT Cellnet, which was a mobile phone company uh, before the year 2002, um, basically merged and created a new company called O2. Um, I was lucky enough to take on the role as head of sponsorship, being a 26-year-old um, with probably one of the biggest sponsorship budgets in the, in the industry. Mm. Uh, it was an incredible opportunity, and we were asked to go out and look for a football team to sponsor, and we ended up sponsoring the uh, mighty Arsenal. Arsenal have scored! as well as um, the England rugby team. I was very fortunate that I was there during the, uh, not only when Arsenal were doing really well and they were winning things, also there in 2003 when England won the World Cup in Australia. Um, And we did various things in music and and festivals like the O2 Wireless Festival. Mm. And then I get a random phone call one day saying, would I be interested in sponsoring the Millennium Dome? Now, I put the phone down. First reason is, Millennium Dome was a disaster. It was a, a, a venue built by the government to celebrate mm. the millennium in 2000. It was basically a massive exhibition that didn't really work very well. And loved and criticised for being a shameful waste of taxpayers' money, the venue spent six years mostly vacant and without a clear purpose before AEG stepped in in 2007. I remember I had a friend go and he couldn't distinguish between what was the queue and what was the exhibit. And that <laughs> tended to be the feedback. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a success. It was a success. Though, though it was a success, it still had 6 million people attend. Right. And as a visitor attraction in your first year, to get 6 million people is a, a great um, uh, achievement. But unfortunately, well, how the government worked it out when they built it, it went over budget. And they realised they needed to get 12 million people through the doors to break even. So it only had 6 million people, which resulted in... 
um, which basically resulted in the fact that it was seen as a failure. Mm. So it sat empty for a couple of years, and this company called AEG that I'd never heard of, I thought made washing machines <laughs> and tumble dryers, basically called me and said, I'd be interested in sponsoring it. And I put the phone down, and I wasn't interested. They then phoned me again and said, look, we were organising a trip to Vegas and Los Angeles uh, to show people what um, AEG is about and who we are. And I was like, Vegas, L.A.? I love the Millennium Dome. It's a beautiful piece of architecture and uh, I showed a lot more interest than I uh, ever did. Um, And I went over and I was inspired by this company. Um, And I was like, wow, this is a great opportunity um, to be involved in. And um, I came back to the UK and the long short, because I'm sure we'll talk about later on, is that I ended up doing the Name Your Rights deal for the Millennium Dome, which became the O2. Mm. And in 2007, opened up its doors to become, which it still is now, the number one music venue in the world. Yeah. And... Just on the O2, is it an urban myth or is it true that they wanted to build a hotel in the shape of a two next to the O? That is kind of an urban myth. But let's say they decided. (laughs) When we were in negotiations with um, AEG, when I was working for O2 at the time, if you look at the, you know, from the sky, the Millennium Dome, or the O2 as it is now, was a big O. Yeah. And we thought, wouldn't it be amazing to have a massive two next to it? And there was always plans, which is now open for a five-star hotel, and one of my colleagues, uh, AJ, who was head of brand at the time, mm. went, can you make the hotel in the shape of a two? And then it would look great. And actually what we tried to uh, AJ explain was actually having a hotel in the shape of a two was not very practical, especially for the person maybe who's delivering the room service, if they had to kind of, kind of go down this kind of weird route to get to one end <laughs> of the hotel. So um, the, the hotel did get built, finally. It opened a few years ago, but it's not in the shape of a two. Okay, I had heard that urban myth. <laughs> Let's focus on you for a second. Um, have you got a mentor? Have you ever mentored anybody? Um, I've mentored a few people. I say I've, men- I've mentored people. People have come to me and asked for uh, advice. Um, often they kind of, you know, I, I, where I can, I always try and help out. You obviously can't help everyone. So often it's someone that knows someone mm. that emails me and says they've got this nephew who's setting up their career or you know, they're making some decisions. And, Sometimes, you know, they will come to me with ideas and I'll be quite blunt and tell them what I think of them. Often it's people that sometimes try to set up on their own and do their own thing. Now, I, I, I love the fact that people have ambitions. Sometimes people don't know reality and yeah. they kind of think going off on their own is always going to be an easy piece uh, of work. Reality is, you know, one in a million probably make, you know, become millionaires, mm. but there's a lot of people that don't. Um, <laughs> I've, I don't think I've had direct mentors. I had a lady called uh, Kath Kears who used to be... Um, marketing director at O2. Um, she's someone I kind of learn a lot from um, and regularly um, still meet up with t- today, and, you know, to these days. And we go out for a lunch probably once a year where we catch up and always take her advice and, yeah. and things. And, uh, you know, in fact, um, her stepdaughter ended up coming work for me one time. It, it was kind of, you know, talking about full circle yeah. uh, where basically she asked me to kind of help her out. Um, in the same way I felt that she's helped her, uh, you know, um, me out, etc. And then one of my other um, original bosses, a guy called Lawrence Alexander, um, who, who was the guy that brought me into O2 originally, um, you know, he gave me a lot of advice and I learned a lot from him over the years. Okay. And what qualities do you look for in your colleagues and the people that work around you? What's important? You know, the key thing is when I interview people for roles, there's a myth, but it's not really a myth because I think it's true, that, you know, everyone says in the first 30 seconds, you'll know if someone is right for the role or not. And people say, that's why it's not really true. And to me, it's 100% true. I can walk into a meeting room and in the first 30, maybe 60 seconds, I know how that, that meeting is going to go. In fact, when I always do interviews, 
I always get the people that are setting up the interviews to tell the person that my meetings, interviews will normally last 20 to 30 minutes max. I like to do things quickly. And the kind of reason for that is by 30 minutes, I know if that person is not going to get the role. So why waste my time and their time? Yeah. Um, but without being rude, I don't want to kind of, if, if you cut an interview too short, <laughs> it, it can be rude as well. A lot of persons put a lot of effort into, mm. into planning uh, that interview. So you have to give them some respect as well. So I try and make it mutual, but you kind of know straight away. And it's about the right attitude of that person. You can tell quite straight, straight away if someone is actually exaggerating or mm-hmm. um, lying in their interview. You can get a good feel for that approach. But I want someone that has that um, ability that just really straight away um, uh, gets me and, and makes me realize that they are the right person. The other day, I'm mainly hiring salespeople. Right. And that salesperson has to sell our business. Mm. And if they can't sell themselves to me, what, help do, what hope do they have in selling themselves and they our company to other people. Yeah, I understand. Um, are you any good at switching off? Of your, are you always checking emails on holiday? How's how's that work? So I would say yes. My wife would definitely say no. Oh. Um, I, I I find it relaxing, bizarrely, sitting on a sunbed and reading my emails. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something about I'm quite relaxed, and I'm not, I'm quite I'm. I'm more concerned if I'm not if I'm worried about if stuff's going on and if I'm missing something or something can happen. So that's that part of it. So I'm quite relaxed sitting, and then my wife gets very annoyed with me every time I'm you know why I'm not playing with the kids. But mm. I'm like you're reading a book. This is, this is my version of a book. Is reading yeah. uh, re- reading emails. I think it is important to switch off. What I try and do is also I don't like coming back from holiday and having a thousand emails to go through. So I always take my laptop. Mm. I will every evening you know when everyone's getting showered or ready for you know ready for bed or. Everyone's gone to bed. I would sit there and clear my emails for that day just because I feel I then feel relaxed and I'm yeah. not worried about things being built up. But but do I um, switch off? No. Um, I often do conference calls on work because in the day we're in an environment. In the old days, it was you went on holiday. There was no way of you know staying in contact. The only way of staying in contact was if you used a pay phone. Then, the, then a mobile phone was available, but you weren't getting really emails mm. on it unless you took your laptop with you and you kind of didn't in, in mm. the old days. Now it's so easy to connect you're, I wouldn't say people are expected because you know I want people to you know have a chance to recharge their batteries, and I think it's very healthy that people have a chance to recharge their batteries. But for me personally, I like to stay on top of things. Um, you know, deals don't get stopped. Unfortunately, always the way. Every time I go away, we're at contract with some major contracts, major sponsors. At the time I'm going away, it just is the way life goes. Um, but um, so no, I don't switch off. Uh, unfortunately. Okay, I want to ask one more question about you. What do you think you'll be known for professionally? What so, do you think you are known for? So my legacy, I, I think, mm. will always be the O2 deal. Yeah. You know, I was the guy that made the bold decision to, to name the O2. Um, and it, it was the toughest um, deal that I've ever done. There was lots of um, negativity within the business because it was a risk. I mean, having a multi-million pound sponsorship on your books uh, that could have could have been a failure and I knew this when I did the deal. I always knew this was going to make me famous for this or I was going to get fired. Yeah. And I didn't know which way I was going to go. Um, and my legacy could have been the guy that, you know, failed the Millennium Dome the second time. So I was delighted when it's been the success it has been. So I think my legacy will always be the, the guy that did the naming rights for the O2. So, Paul, we're into the bit where we're going to talk about your your business, your role, um, and what it encompasses at AEG. We've spoken briefly about what it is. You mentioned the music venues, the music tours, uh, and the festivals, as well as some sports yeah. uh, 
I mean, but give us some sense of the scale because it's huge, isn't it? Well, how many venues around the world? We have probably about over 150 venues around the world, wow. large venues. Um, we own, so as AEG, we're owned by one person, a guy called Philip Anschutz. Uh, he, you know, basically bought an ice hockey team about 20 years ago, or 25 years ago now, I should say, um, which was a, a team that was about to go bankrupt and bought it as a hobby. He wasn't in this industry at all. He kind of was in oil and gas okay. um, and had telecoms companies as well. And he bought this ice hockey team called the LA Kings, who weren't doing very well um, at all, bought them and then realized he needed to invest in them. And as part of the investment, he realized he needed a new venue to play in. So he basically bought a lot of land in, land in LA, downtown, and 25 years ago, downtown LA wasn't a place you really went to. Um, it was quite dangerous. And, yeah. you know, there were riots down there and things like that. You remember from the news, etc. But he bought all this land and sat on this land for a long time and then built them a new arena, um, which is the Staples Center in Los Angeles. Wow. And that was the start of AEG. We have a sports team um, and a venue. And that's kind of the, um, the real legacy of our company is basically um, hardware and software company. The hardware is the venues that we own. And the software is the content we put in those venues, right? Um, be that sports teams or music. And the idea is is the two work really well together. So there are, you know, as we put tours around the world, we obviously try and put as many of the tours into the venues that we own. Not always, etc. But we would do our best. Mm. Um, so the company now is split into various divisions. There's AG facilities, which is the venues that we own and operate. Some of them we own outright, like the O2 in London, where we we, we basically built it and uh, invest in it and own it. And there's venues like the SSC Arena in Wembley where we don't own it, but we run it on a long-term management contract. Okay. And it's owned by a company called Quentain. Um, so that's kind of the, the venue side of the business. Then there's AG Sports. I mentioned the um, uh, LA Kings. We also own part of the LA Lakers. We own the LA Galaxy um, in LA. We also, in more close to home in Berlin, we own an ice hockey team called the Ice Baron. Um, and in uh, Sweden, we own a, a football team called um, Hammerby. Okay. So, you know, we have various teams, but also we put on lots of um, sporting events. So right now uh, in the California, we're, we own the Tour of California Soccer Race. And this year will be our second year of owning the Tour of Germany. Um, Germany, the cycling in Germany used to be huge. There were a lot of doping scandals 10 years ago. It kind of died. And we believe, you know, we, it's time to invest and, uh, and create, it, create it again. What we won't do is get invest, invest in kind of, you know, football over here because we don't believe we can make a difference there yeah. but actually investing in teams or or events which are where we can see growth and opportunity that uh, we will always get involved you know, e-gaming is another example of us in our sports division we're going get you know we are involved we are invested in a team in um la in, in e-gaming and oh, we're wow, very into okay. e-gaming coming to our of course to our venues and so that's the scope of you mentioned your <coughs> phrase the hardware and the software yeah. Give us a flavour of how brands get involved in huge ways and in small ways. I'm guessing yeah. there aren't that many small ways, but go on. <laughs> so we, we as a company, very rarely do people know who AEG are. Yeah. And the reason for that is we don't promote ourselves as a brand. Mm. We let other brands, consumer brands, come in and take that ownership, be that the SSE in, for Wembley or the O2 for the O2, um, where we let brands take ownership via naming rights of our, of our properties. Um, and so that's kind of the, the large scale we look at naming rights. But there's always opportunities for people to uh, invest and do things at our venues. We're looking for brands that really can enhance the experience for the consumer when they come to one of our venues or music festivals. It's not just about badging and putting a sign up. I mean, that's part of it, obviously, having signage and media opportunities. But actually, it's more about what that brand can do and help create uh, and enhance that experience. I mean... 
one of the things that you're doing, you've got the easiest job in the world because you're selling, this is a podcast about youth marketing, youth culture, and sports and live music are huge passion points, right? And for a brand to get involved in this is should be a, an exciting sell and an easy sell. Mm. Obviously, you're looking to maximise value. Do any brands get it wrong? Is there, are there, how easy is it to mess this up? So I, I do think... Um, First of all, if, if I wish it was an easy sell, right? Um, because you know the competition for us is not just you know uh, other music events. Obviously, you know we, there's lots of competition in the music industry, but we're fighting against you know brands that, that for sport. You know, think about the amount of football clubs and sports teams that are out there, all fighting mm. for the money. But also now fighting for money against the advertising budgets as well. You know, there's but you know, at the end of the day, a brand will have a marketing budget, and they've got to work out how to spend it. Some of it will be on TV. Um, you know, it was one in the past, it was us against advertising budgets we're trying to create. Now we're going against content budgets, online budgets, you know, social media budgets. They're all fighting for this one pot of money. Um, and it's about who could get the best reach um, and the, be the best social engagement. Um, and of course, what we try and do is sell the, the fact that we have great media impressions, but also much more engagement than you would get from a TV commercial. So you've already, you mentioned the signage. And also you were, <coughs> if you forgive me, Paul, you were quite visionary in terms of sponsorship when you were at the O2, where you are now. It's it's moving brands beyond a badging exercise, isn't uh, it? 100%. 100%. If you, recently we have, you know, we just finished our festival with Barclay Card British Summertime in Hyde Park. You know, for, for that, it wasn't, you know, yesterday, for Barclay Card, there's great signage opportunities, great, you know, media opportunities, but actually it's about the experiential piece they do on site. They, they really go and, and really make the Barclay Card customer have a great experience. And that's the key thing. Most of our sponsors always want everyone that's going to a venue or festival to have a great experience. But if you're a member of that brand, you might have a better experience. So at the O2, for example, Sky, one of our partners, they have a Sky backstage bar where if you're a Sky customer, you can build, you know, up weight your uh, experience by going into a much better lounge than you could do on normal concourse. So it's all trying to find unique things that really help um, enhance that brand and making it accessible for their partners. So this is about brands being enablers and almost... En exactly. Enablers for their customers to enhance their experience. Have AEG said no to brands? So there's sometimes where you don't think a brand is the right <coughs> fit for a particular opportunity. We will always try and find and match the right brand with the right property. Um, yes, there's been things where maybe haven't felt that are right, but most of the time, you know, we don't, we aren't going to go to certain brands for certain things. You know, we're not interested in, you know, we're not going to go to a pornography right. uh, brand <laughs> to sponsor our venues. It's not, it doesn't fit with our culture, mm. et cetera. That said, we also have brands at the O2, for instance, we have a deal with Logic, who's about, you know, a vaping partner. Okay. Um, because actually we see it as an opportunity to encourage people to, to, to stop smoking, traditional smoking, and going into, you know, other options that are out there in the market, like vaping. And do you see it, and I won't ask you to name names, do you see it in other places more clunkily done? I don't know, fast food and football, although McDonald's would say their partnership with the FA is a wonderful success. Do you... Well, do you, do you know, I think it's how it's done. So McDonald's okay. and the FA, do you think what they actually do, a lot of it's about grassroots um, and getting kids playing football. Mm. And so actually, and it's countering what, you know, all the bad things that potentially... Um, you know, fast food may do, they are doing something about it and yep. they are trying to make healthier options and they are trying to promote um, people playing football. So I think that is done really well. There was recently a, um, a festival, I think it was in somewhere in America, I can't remember where it was, where it was sponsored by KFC and they brought on this kind of DJ chicken 
to perform and it was just seen as a failure. It just didn't work. So brands sometimes do get it wrong. Right. And it's what, what the brands that work really well, we have a huge team here that help our brands activate. Okay. We know what works, what doesn't work. So when a brand does come to us with some ideas, which sometimes may be a bit silly and may not be, you know, be, <laughs> might, might not work, we help to advise them and kind of, you know, curve them into the right direction to basically um, to do it correctly. That said... I put my hat on when I was at O2. I remember people saying to me, no, you shouldn't do it this way. And I kind of said, no, we're doing it this way. And it worked. So sometimes brands do challenge us and they say, no, we want to do this. And and it works. So you have to be, be able to take it, you know, as, in our seat, you have to be willing to take advice sometimes as well and give brands benefit of the doubts because okay. actually it's something come up with some really creative ideas. And you would count <coughs> yourself and AEG as the live events and experiences specialists and the brands can harness what the brand means to their customers in the, in the that, best that's way. correct and the collaborative approach is where the magic happens exactly and you know that that is, that is really key sometimes you know it's the brand that come up, you know, a good example o2 came out with a great idea younger of us it was an o2 idea when drake recently played the o2 uh he has a, a lyric one of his songs where the o2 becomes the o3 and you know me now, from a brand perspective, you would normally think a brand would never want to mess with its logo or its name. But O2 still the opportunity. And they said to us, we want to rename the O2, the O3, for the 10 days or so that Drake's there. And all they did, really, was take the sign down on the front of the building and put it with an O3 sign. It had millions and millions of impressions. Drake took photos of it which had millions of impressions and likes, but nearly every fan that went into the O2 for that show had a, a selfie in front of the O3 sign. And I know the O2 is a <coughs> huge venue and I know it's part of a much bigger relationship, but that that cost is, I mean, next to nothing. Is that right? In terms of to make that tactical shift and to get the amplification. For that one sign? Yeah. That sign probably cost yeah. £100, right. maybe, some, you know, or £200 to rechange the sign. Mm. That's an example of, of something which is incredibly um, t- talented idea. Um, and I, I love to take credit for it, and it wasn't me <laughs> on this occasion. Uh, <laughs> it, it worked really well because yeah. it was taking a simple thing, playing with a brand, being clever, being, you know, trying to be, you know, humour the brand, you know, by changing its name, working with an artist that comes there, and it just shows how easy it was. So, Often brands, are, I feel that they can't, you know, when you do sponsorship, the, the, one side of it is the barrier because the cost of actually a, um, not only paying sponsorship fees, but also activating sponsorship is expensive. Yeah. But you can sometimes be really clever and do things, on the, you know, much more cheaper from the activation side. Forgive me, I'm going <coughs> to jump into kind of theory now and it mm. might be outdated theory, but it used to be back when I worked at media agencies, sort of in the content team, that the old adage was, was it a rule of four and one? So for every one pound you spent on the sponsorship, you had to spend another four activating. Is that still true? Is there a rule no. of thumb? Or, or? I think the rule of thumb we normally use is, you know, one on one. Okay. Uh, reality is, you know, if you're spending a pound, you should be on a sponsorship, you should be activating a pound. That's up, some will spend more, some will obviously spend uh, less. You don't need to spend one on one. Of course, when you do the larger sponsorship, when you're doing multi million pound sponsorships, you probably don't need to spend <laughs> one to one because right. actually that'd be lovely, but probably unrealistic as well. Especially if you, you know, if you think about, you know, some football teams now are going for 40, 000, 40 million pounds. Right. I can tell you those, those brands are not spending 40 million pounds activating. Sure. Most of those brands, you know, they are probably spending less than a million activating because right. they've got no money left after yep. they spent it on the. Uh, the shirt sponsorship. And are there, you look at different opportunities depending on the brands, <coughs> what they, um, 
you look at different opportunities depending on what the brand want to achieve. Mm. So if it's a direct sales, if it's brand perception, brand awareness, the right sponsorship or sponsorship activation might be available for them. 100%. We, we're very, very keen that when we do partnerships with, with brands, we set KPIs that change every year to ensure we're on the same page right at the beginning of what they're trying to achieve. Because if they say at the beginning, we're trying to achieve sales or trying to or consideration or intent to purchase, whatever the, they're deciding is the, the thing they're trying to achieve, we're very clear on that. So we can ensure that our team are helping to activate all those ideas to help reach that goal. Um, and then we've got no issue. If six months, after six months, someone says, hang on a minute, our KPIs of the business have changed. That's fine as well. But being very clear about our objectives which makes it work. Because at the end of the day, how, the only way you can tell if, if a partnership has worked is if you knew what the objectives of the partnership were at the beginning. And so it's very clear for anyone, really anything you do in life and anything in your career, is what is your objectives and how can you reach those goals? What's the partnership that you're most proud of since you've been at AEG? So for me, taking the O2-1 away, because obviously I was on the other side yeah. of the table originally for that, and renewing it on this side for another 10 years, obviously I'm very proud of. I think for me would be probably the deal with Sky. Um, it's 10 years we've had the deal with Sky at the O2. Wow. And I basically always say to my team, never send cold call emails um, because, you know, you send an email, it gets deleted. Like, you know, I get cold call emails and I never even respond to them. But, and I always tell people, you know, you've got to be more creative about that to get the kind of the message out there and get someone to kind of call you back. And there's different techniques you can do for that. And I, we invite enjoy- them to be on a podcast, for example. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so reality is we, um, we, we try different techniques all the time. And we tried to get hold of the right person at Sky about 15 times by this point and got nowhere. I remember being, I think it was like a Friday afternoon. I was like, you know, looking at my budgets going, God, I've got, you know, I've got a long way to go to hit my targets for this year. <laughs> and I did what I said I, just, I hate doing is just send a cold call email. And I got the email address of the MD at Sky at the time, a guy called Brian Sullivan. Um, and I just sent him this email. And to my surprise, two minutes later, it pinged back going, yes, let's meet. I kind of like went, uh, is this right? Is this correct? <laughs> Had to check I sent it to the right person. And he came down with his team. Um, and, you know, um, he came down with one of his colleagues, uh, a guy called uh, Stephen Van Ruen, who actually is uh, now the CEO at Sky. Wow. Um, and he took over, you know, leading the negotiations. Um, and basically, um, we did the Sky deal. And it's been a great success for them. And it's been great for us as well. And this encompasses Sky's presence at the O2. And presence at the O2 with their... Sky Backstage Bar, yeah. but also their, um, their activation zone where you, you can, they have a Sky studio there mm. where you can read the news, which is great fun and highly recommend. Um, and they, they really bring to life all the things that they're trying to do in that quarter. That could, that could be about box sets or it could be about a, a, a summer of sports. They use their space to really promote um, the, what they're doing on TV. It gives them a chance as a, a place where they can plan out throughout the year how to bring Sky to life uh, in an entertainment place, which we are at the end of the day. Um, final question in this section about your, your roles and your business. When you when you've touched on it already, when you left O2 and came to AEG, was there a sense of poacher turned gamekeeper or was there was it, it was it a moment yeah, how did how did that feel and how was that perceived? Whenever I whenever when I came to AEG, it was very it took me a while to get my head out or, or to say, I'm not here now to protect the contract that O2 has and activate for O2. Of course though we do that day by day. I'm there to sell to other brands and do something different. And it was a very strange, it took a while. I, I actually went from, I was at O2 for six years, um, loved the job, etc. And uh, actually, I, I pretty 
maybe it's the right time to talk about how I ended up at AEG. So I hired an agency to help evaluate the naming rights of the deal when I was at O2. Because no, at the time, no, naming rights didn't exist. Now, if you go to most venues around the UK, they've all got naming rights for mm. music venues. At the time, they didn't exist. No one had naming rights. So there was no specialists in this market. Whereas in America, there were lots of specialists. So I hired a, um, I hired a company called the Bonham Group, who were based out of Denver, who were specialized, specialized in, this, in this sector. They helped evaluate it. And that helped kind of give the evaluation of what this thing was worth to help get the, the business to approve doing the deal. Um, after the deal was signed in 2005, about 2006, the end of 2006, I got a phone call from the Bonham Group, <coughs> who basically said to me, uh, they decided to expand their offices into the UK and have a European team. And would I like to be the CEO? Wow. And I was like, wow. And they made me an offer that I could, it was a big offer and I was very excited about it. And I thought about it, but I chickened out. I was like, I'm not sure this is right for me going from- Why? What? I don't know what it was. I'll tell you what it, oh, I'll tell you what it was. I worked for a big company where I was a part of a big team and I felt very confident. I, it was a great brand to work with and there was some good leadership uh, at, at, the, at the company as well. Um, and I felt you know, passionate about what I was doing. Also, this biggest project, that this naming rights deal that I had done was going to open in a year's time. And I kind of wanted oh. to be there for the opening versus this is going to a startup uh, in the UK on my own and setting up a business, though I was getting paid a salary. Um, mm. And it made me this offer and I turned it down because I was a bit chicken, to be honest. Mm. And sometimes you've got to take risk and yep. risk and reward. And then they thought I was negotiating. So they made me a bigger offer. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is what do I do? And I, I, I panicked. I was like, this is such a good offer. How do I not take this role? And again, after six serious consideration, I backed out. I think I could, I think because I want to be at the opening for the O2. Yeah. Um, and I love my job as head of sponsorship. Vote. I just really, really enjoyed what I did. And then it was, I, I got engaged to my now wife, uh, been together 12 years. And we were in, um, just got engaged and went away on holiday to Marbella. And we were in the sea being romantic in those days. I was holding her in the <laughs> sea as you, you do in early, early years of marriage. Um, and she said to me, when I give up work, when we have kids, and I dropped her in the sea. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, I, I want to be a stay-at-home mum. I don't want to get, don't want to work. And you know what? And, there's, and, in, and in life, you'll find there's people that want to do that. And mm. there's people that want to have careers. And that was her decision. That's what she wanted to do. And for the first time, it came to reality at that one point that my salary at O2 was now going to have to support not only a partner, but also children. And I was like, I'm going to have to get a job and probably earn some more money. And <laughs> I, I got out of the sea. And at that point, I, I went and called the Bonham Group in the US. And I phoned them and it was early morning. And I said, have you found anyone for that role yet? And they actually said, well, someone's actually flying over to Denver as we speak. They're in the air. Um, someone we've interviewed on the phone, uh, et cetera. And we're going to interview them face to face. And tonight, if we like them, we're going to offer them the job. Wow. But we'd still rather have you if you agree a deal before he lands. And I then went to, I, was stay, I wasn't even staying at this hotel. Using, I went to this hotel on the beach. So I wasn't even using, was pretending I was staying there and asked to use their fax machine. And we sent back faxes of a term sheet back there and then. And by the end of that day, I signed the term sheet and uh, I quit my job at O2 and went to the Bonham Group. Wow. And it was probably the best and worst decision that I made. It was the best because it got me out of my comfort zone. That's the key thing, I think. We get in our comfort zones in life. 
And that was certainly my comfort zone in O2. Can I interrupt and ask a silly question? Yeah. Did O2 still invite you to the opening of the O2? Yes, they did. I'm sure they yes, did. They did. Yeah, yeah, yes, they did. Yes, they did. I was still got that. Moment. I still got that part. And I, was okay. still, I was still very, you know, involved in that. But I was in my comfort zone and need to get out of it. And that to me was, um, that was a good thing. The bad thing was, and it was a good thing I was getting a salary as a startup, but setting up a startup, it's great. When you work for a company like O2 and you're a brand and you're a head of sponsorship and you've got this huge amounts of money and, and budgets, everyone loves you. Everyone accepts your call. Everyone takes your call. When you're a one-man band um, making calls, hey, it's Paul here from the Bonham Group. Uh, hi, yes, we used, to, we used to work at O2 or what we used to mm. They've got no, you're, you're no you're good to them. You've got no, you've got nothing to give them. So it was a very, very hard piece. That said, we did hit up, we had a, a target for the year of about a million pound in revenue. We got that target. Um, I was delighted, don't know how, uh, but we, we got there. It, it worked really well. We had lots of clients. But the actual, as we started getting clients, we need to hire more staff. And the guy, our owner, was going through some trouble in the US and he couldn't really afford to hire more staff. And we were having these clients and we couldn't service. And thankfully for me, um, I bumped into the, the old CEO of AEG at the O2 one night. I used to go back there regularly because mm. the O2 had opened in, in, July, in June 2007. So it was about maybe September 2007. I bumped into him and he was over from the US. And he said, how's it going? And I, I, he basically said, I hear that, you know, they're having a few troubles in the Bonham Group in the US. Would you like to, um, you should come work for us. I said, he said, no, he actually said, why did you work, not, why did you work for the Bonham Group and not for us? I said, you never offered me a job. <laughs> that, the next day he called me and said, I've done a deal with Dean Bonham. I'm going to buy the Bonham Group UK, which is the bit you set up, um, and you're going to come work for us. I had shares in the business. You've got to give up your shares for nothing. And I, but then you can come work for AG. And I basically took the option and said yes. A lot of my friends went, why are you giving up your shares? Mm. Um, and by this point, I would have owned, because when you sell a company, you're kind of, mm. your shares kind of uh, flourish. And uh, I ended up, would have owned 24% of the company. And I said, only 24% of a company that's worth nothing mm. is nothing. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to get out. And I ended up working at AEG. The original plan was to kind of carry on the business owned by AEG. But yeah. overnight, we were asked to kind of take on more and more activities of, of AEG. And rather than selling things for 10% as an agency, we should be working for AG full time. And we came in house at AG. My team came with me. Couple, uh, one of them's still with me now. Oh, wow. Uh, all, that time, all these years later. Is the Bonham Group still going in the States? No, the, the, that's the, not the funny thing. Unfortunately, <laughs> a year later, the Bonham Group unfortunately went bankrupt wow. in the States. So if I had stayed at the Bonham Group, I would have lost my job anyway. And what was that? Loads of other agencies coming into the sponsorship activation. There was a bit of that. Space. And I think there were some personal issues okay. uh, in the US with the owner, which caused you know it to close so reality is it was the best thing so when i say it was the it was the worst thing because look what could have happened but it was the best thing because it got me into ag um and you know and 12 years later i'm still here a final question on your your role and the work that you're doing paul and it's a crude one but i bet the listeners yep. will be interested what's the what are the numbers we're talking about in terms of financial give us ballparks what's the biggest deal what's the sky deal what's the well I can't give obviously sure. uh, yeah, of details but naming rights in this market will go from anything uh, depending on the size of venue it will be and I say this market I'm talking about Europe yeah will go from anything from yeah you know, it could go from 2 million up to 20 million pounds a year uh, for naming and some of the deal. deals are 10 years long right? some, yeah some, and some of them longer so wow. uh, the original O2 deal was 15 years long. Mm. Um, then what we call secondary partners can go from anything from £500,000 to 
three million pounds, really depending uh, per year, depending on what the assets they've got and the venues and the assets they're going after. Um, and you know, we always we have an evaluation team here who ensure that you know, when we put a package together, it's truly valued. Because what happens is when you go to a brand and you say, "Here's how much we're after," they're going to take that cost to their own agencies to approve and value. So we have to make sure we can, you know, back up the answers that we uh, or we've asked for the questions we've given. Okay, let's do the final part of this chat, mm. which is around your rocket fuel, if you like, the insights that our listeners can get in their jobs, in media, marketing, youth culture. Yeah. Um, and we kind of want actionable things. So, Paul, what one thing do you know about youth audiences or young audiences? Well, the youth today are very, very different as they were five years ago. And I think, you know, I see that in my own children now. Um, it's all about the Instagram moment now. It's all about, you know, um, recording and, and, and sharing, uh, which is very, very different. You know, you go to a concert now, at the, you know, anywhere around the world, the artist comes out. People have waited six months to see an artist. They're really, really excited. They should be, you know, years ago, they'll be crying as they come out. What's the first thing they do as the artist comes out now? They pick up their phone and video it mm. and to share it. They're not even watching what the artist is doing. They're more interested in, and then straight away then, they want the Wi-Fi in the building to be able to share that with their friends at home. So the time the second artist, the artist doing their second song, no one's listening because they're more times about putting that photo on Instagram or Facebook, etc. Mm. So it's a very, very different way and different culture than, than when you and I were growing up going to concerts. Yeah. What, in, in an age of brand <coughs> purpose, what's important to young audiences? I, I think the key thing is that people want to have ownership. They want to have, um, um, to touch and feel and actually experience, experience things. Mm. Um, they want to try things before they buy. Um, they, they, they want to be able to, as I mentioned, to share. Um, so they, these are the kind of things that people want. So when we go to a music concert or a festival, what brands need to do is, is things that, you know, what can they, they do that can help people experience the festival that involves sharing, that are going to um, post. That's what people want to do. They want people to post things that they're doing at the festival yeah. in their experiential areas. Okay. And what's changed about young audiences and what do you think will change next? I think audiences have got cleverer, more clever. You know, that even, you know, I, I think about my own children, they're much more savvy than I was at that age. You know, they're, they're just much more switched on because they have, they have more access to things than we ever had. You know, when I grew up, and, and the same with you, there were four TV channels. In fact, when I started, there were three. Mm. Um, you know, Channel 4 came, I remember the launch of Channel 4. So reality is they're much more to expect things on demand now. They don't watch TV like, I watch TV where you had to kind of say at seven o'clock, I'm going to watch that program. They only watch things on demand. They watch things on demand via Netflix, via, via catch up on Sky, or they watch it via, uh, via YouTube. So that is people and people expect things on demand. So they, in their life and their, you know, in their experiences, they want everything on demand. They want shopping on demand. They want, and that's why Amazon have Amazon prime because mm. when you buy a product, you want it not tomorrow, you want it today. I also think there's a thing about, there's a much more of a healthier and better brand perception from younger people. People get the exchange, don't they? I bet when people see Sky at the O2, as long as Sky are adding value to the experience, then they're happy to have the brand along. A hundred percent. And I think, I always say, I'm always asked sometimes at conferences and things, you know, do people really want to have brands at, um, at festivals? And my answer is quite simple. If you said to, I can guarantee, if you said to a hundred people, 
and I can guarantee 99 of them would agree with this. 100 people, you can go to a music festival with no branding and you're going to pay £500 for a ticket. You go to a festival that's going to have brands there, enhancing experience, but you're going to pay £150 for a ticket. I can guarantee 99% will say, I'll go with the brands. And are you... So obviously Glastonbury's, if you like, seen as the pinnacle of yep. festival experiences. And they delight in being choosy over their brand partners. And in fact, they hardly have any. Mm. Do you think there is anything like as too much commercialization of music and festivals? I, I think you can do it in a really well. We are, we are, I think there's a better festival out there than Glastonbury. It's one we own called Coachella. Um, uh, in California. That's the ultimate festival experience. And there are a lot of brands there. Those brands that are there aren't like brands that you see a lot of other festivals. They're kind of hidden, the brands. They're all in kind of tents, all the, all the activations. So you don't see a lot of signage. Um, and that's because it's a brand, you know, it's been around now for, you know, 15 years, Coachella or so. And it's kind of got this piece where, you know, an ultimate festival like Bastonbury and Coachella is you can go on sale and sell out of tickets before you announce to the artist. Wow. That's the ultimate goal for a music festival. Not yep. all festivals can do that. When you're that sort of level, then you can be more dictatorship about what brands can and can't do on site. Okay, final p- question. I just want one takeaway for everybody listening about youth audiences, youth culture. Give us one one thing that you've learned, one thing that everybody what? should keep forefront of mind. So for me, so one thing I, I actually do is I, I've started doing this thing for um, speakers for schools, going around to schools, state schools, and, and doing speaking about my career, etc. Um, it's kind of giving back to the community that, you know, I came from a state school and I feel like, you know, giving back is important. Um, so actually, one of the things I always talk about there and I give them some life lessons, one is never say no to anything. And if I look at what I mean by that is in your careers and what you're doing, so many times people go, I can't do that. Well, just say you can. You can learn on the, on the job. You know, I always remember when I was at um, Wembley Stadium, years and years ago, I was a student and I got a job as a security guard. Um, and it was my first day there and I looked the part, I had black trousers on, white shirt, black bomber jacket. And I turned up and I looked the part. And the guy said to me, you've done this before, haven't you? And I said, yep, I hadn't. Uh, <laughs> and he said, great, you've been promoted as a supervisor. We need another supervisor. And I made an extra pound an hour or whatever it was. And reality is, for the job I was doing, I didn't need to, you know, to do that. Mm. When I'm at work and people, you know, in early in my career and people said, there's an opportunity, we need someone to do this. I put my hand up to do it. Even I didn't, didn't know what I was doing because you learn on the job. So really, really make sure that you go for it. I think sometimes in the culture of the youth culture nowadays, too many people kind of shy away and say, I can't, I can't do that. I don't have the experience, etc." Well, actually, you know, how many times have we sat around meet, marketing meetings with marketeers and actually you think to yourself, they're making this up as they go along, but they're getting away with it and good luck to them. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much. No problem. Can people follow you on social media? Do you want people to follow yeah, you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter with Paul Samuels 99 Brilliant. Um, and I'm also, um, well, that's my kind of public one, mm. Instagram, Facebook, more for of course. personal friends. Brilliant. Paul, thank you so much. No problem at all. I hope you agree that was a great chat, fascinating conversation, a really awesome guest. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Um, you can get in touch with us across all socials at We Are Rocket or with me directly at James Erskine on Twitter. For more, tune in next week. Uh, we're still in our first season. We're still kind of evolving what we're going to try and do. We know that we want to learn from people in the youth culture, youth marketing space to establish what their rocket fuel is. Give us a five-star review, share the podcast, and tune in again next week.
Thanks for listening. This is a Rocket Audio production.